holiday toast And Snoopy, our hero, saluted his host And then with a roar, they were both on their way Each knowing they'd meet on some other day Welcome to the Plot Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. The Plot is a co-promotion of Odessa Steps Magazine and the When It Was Cool Network. For this festive season, we're going to dig deep into the pop culture vault and give you an intriguing mix of genres to discuss. The Singing Cowboy Christmas Picture. No, really, that's what we're doing. The origins of the singing cowboy genre are generally thought to go back to the mid-twenties, beginning when Carl T. Sprague recorded the cowboy song, When the Work's All Done This Fall, and then John I. White was the first person to perform the genre on a national radio broadcast. There are a few others, such as Jules Verne Allen, Harry McClintock, Wilf Carter, and Tex Owens. These were often folk songs based on campfire songs and ballad that had been around for decades earlier. But then once sound pictures began, music sort of changed from that into a more countryfied and maybe even big band style music. There are dozens of people who would be described over the years in the singing cowboy genre, including Tex Ritter, who was John Ritter's father, who won an Academy Award for singing Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, which was the title track for High Noon, and even John Wayne, before he got more established with with John Ford, appeared as singing Sandy Saunders in Writers of Destiny in 1933. He was more of a darker-edged singing cowboy than what we would know in the genre. But we're going to specifically talk about arguably the two most famous singing cowboys who just happened to make the two pictures that we're going to talk about today, and they are Roy Rogers and Gene Autry. It's Christmas on the It's Christmas out on the range. Roy Rogers was born Leonard Franklin Sly in November of 1911 in Cincinnati, where he grew up as a kid. Later, his family moved to Southern California after his sister and her husband had moved there. They got factory jobs and construction jobs. His sister persuaded him to audition for a radio show doing some country western music and soon after that he ended up joining a band called the Rocky Mountaineers who would eventually become the Sons of the Pioneers who eventually would be Roy Rogers backup band. A few years after that is when he made his first film. He was actually in uh, backup in one of Gene Autry's movies and then a few years later Autry was holding out for more money, Republic Pictures decided they could make their own new singing cowboy and chose Leonard and then gave him the name Roy Rogers, starting in Under the Western Stars. And from there, he be, he went on to become one of the two biggest stars 
of the genre along with Autry. Then that led to his television show and radio show and all those other things. And if you're in the mid-Atlantic states in the 70s and 80s, you also probably have a fondness for the restaurant chain that bore his name. The film we're going to talk about is called The Trail of Robin Hood, the seventh picture that Rogers made in 1950. And despite the title, the film has nothing to do with England or Robin Hood or any of those things. It's actually about, of all things, the Christmas tree business. The film opens with Roy tracking down some men who have just been cutting down trees and he trails them to the J.C. Aldridge Christmas tree cutting camp. Hey, you're cutting your Christmas trees a little early, aren't you? Any law against it? There is when you're stealing them off of somebody else's property. You calling me a thief? The picture is not four minutes old and Roy is already having his first fist fight. This is with Mitch McCall, who is the head of the Aldridge Christmas tree camp, played by Bobby Bondust Young, who decades earlier had been part of the Our Gang serials. The fight ends with the arrival of Jack Holt, who owns the neighboring Christmas tree farm, and just happens to be playing a fictionalized version of himself, a former Western picture star who is now in retirement. And here he's going to give us the beginning of the exposition. Hello, Roy. Where have you been the last couple of weeks? Been up in the mountains on a little inspection tour. Looks like your boys picked on the wrong guy to start a fight with. Maybe I better introduce you. This is Mitch McCall, Roy Rogers, local head of the U.S. Soil Conservation Service. Well, how are you, Rogers? Jack, I'll say one thing. He's really fighting on your side. All right, forget it, fellas, and get back to work. Mr. Holt, as long as you're here, maybe we can talk business. Since I talked to you last, I got some backing. Big backing. I make the contracts for the Aldridge Company. Aldridge, I heard of him. They call him King of the Christmas Tree. That's right. It's a big outfit, Jack. Cutting trees on all the ranches around here. Why, we'll probably move this camp two or three times. Sorry, Mitch, but I'm going to do my own cutting and hauling. But if we do the work, all you got to do is sit back and take half the profits. Jack doesn't want a profit. He's selling his trees for just what it cost him to raise them. Yeah, that's what I told Roy when I planted these six years ago. You see that tree there? Yeah. Well, I'm going to sell that for 75 or 80 cents, as against 8 or $10 that they usually bring. Mr. Holt, this could very easily run the Aldridge Syndicate right out of business. I made a little money in pictures, and that's why I'm ranching. Every family that wants a tree is going to get one. <laughs> you know, you could go broke on that basis. I'm not interested in making a profit. If there is any, I'll give it to the children's home. Kids like that made it possible for me to become a star. There's not a lot of room for shades of gray in films like this. And we soon meet the other side, J.C. Aldridge and his daughter, Toby. Hello? Give me a long distance. I'm sorry, Mr. Aldridge is too busy to see now you. Now get this straight. Tell the railroad I want 20 cars and I don't want alibis, I want action. All I've been getting down there is alibis, alibis, alibis. Hello, Miss Aldridge. The old boy on a rampage again? The usual. Well, Dad, I'm back. So I see. Just got off the plane with a mate coming in. Did you get those contracts? Signed, sealed, and delivered. After I talked to the mayor, they decided to use Aldridge parking meters. Mr. Aldridge. Yes? Mitch McCall from Glen Rock calling about those Christmas trees. It's about time you checked in. Did you sign up those ranches yet? All but one. There's one I can't get. Jack Holtz. 
I thought I told you to be sure to get hold. Tie up the whole market. If his trees ever go on sale at cheap prices, our dealers will all be canceling their orders. I just talked to Holt. I'm telling you, he won't sell. Let me talk to him. This is Toby Aldrich. I'll take care of selling Mr. Holt. I'll meet you in Glen Rock tomorrow. You better make it to Grove just before you get into town. The squares are putting on a turkey shoot, and the law will be there. Jack Holt included. The Grove it is. I'll have a contract for those trees before he knows what's happened. Okay. <laughs> At least there's some satisfaction in having a daughter with a business head on her shoulders. Just looking out for the Aldridge interests. It's an old habit of mine. <laughs> Turkey shoot. So not only is our antagonist a corporate robber baron, he's got a thoroughly modern Catherine Hepburn-like daughter who's going to take care of these country bumpkins. And if you're wondering where Dal Evans is in all this, she's not in this picture. So yes, that means that Toby, played by Penny Edwards, is going to start off as Roy's antagonist, but will eventually turn babyface and become Roy's love interest. This is not the kind of picture that I think you have to worry about plot swerves. You can pretty much guess what's going to happen for the rest of the picture. Mitch gets more and more desperate to try and take away Jack Holt's Christmas trees, including killing one of his own men and framing Roy, and then eventually setting fire to the bridge that the Holt and his crew need to take the Christmas trees to market. It all ends up with a happy ending, although not for Mitch, who ends up dead. Luckily, a far better fate befalls one of the subplots in this film, that is, the turkey that was the center of the turkey shoot, who was won by the precocious little girl of the film, who adopts it and becomes her own. And then later they are teased the bird's demise by showing Christmas dinner, only to show that the bird is still alive. And then at the end of the film, the bird is alive and drops an egg on the film's comic relief sidekick. Lay us all around and singing to end the film. may be called the king of the singing cowboys it's hard to argue that gene autry might have surpassed him although this is certainly an arguable point autry was of course around longer and had maybe perhaps more of an impact in more forms of popular culture including film radio and of course later owning the california angels one source said that Autry was one of the most important pioneering figures in the history of country music, considered only the second major person behind the development of the genre behind Jimmy Rogers, and that his singing cowboy films were the first vehicle to carry country music to a nationwide audience. Orvon Grover Autry was born in September of 1907 in North Texas, although his family soon moved to southern Oklahoma. After growing up and going to school, he left the family ranch and became a telegraph operator. 
and was singing and playing guitar in local dance halls, where he happened to one night play in front of Will Rogers, who encouraged him to pursue his career. He soon traveled to New York to audition, but was turned down by the company that was soon bought by RCA, and he went back to Oklahoma and then began performing on the radio and got a record deal with Columbia in 1929. From there, he made his way into films and so also made records, becoming a fairly big star right away. In a list of the Motion Picture Herald Top 10 Money-Making Western Stars, Autry polled every year from 1936 to 1942 and from 1946 to 1954, uh, the years he was in the war, and held first place from 1937 to 1942, and second place behind Roy Rogers from 1947 to 1954 when the poll ended. When he returned from the war, he tried to get out of his contract, which had been held up while he committed his service, and the courts ultimately decided with Republic, and so Autry was unable to get out of his contract, finished it out, and then moved from Republic to Columbia. And then his television show series followed, and so on and so on. And then, of course, he bought the Angels. The film we're going to look at from Autry's career is called The Cowboys and the Indians and was made in 1949. For a 2022 eyes, it looks like a fairly progressive film for the time, although still has much of the cultural baggage you would expect from a film made in the late 1940s. At the time, it certainly must have seemed pretty revolutionary given its subject matter, which we will get into in a second. I'm back in the saddle again Out where a friend is a friend where the longhorn cattle feed on the lowly Jimson wheat, back in the saddle again. So here's the opening narration of the film. Like I said, it sort of sends mixed messages while being offensive, but also slightly sympathetic. At least that's how I read this. In the days immediately following the war between the states, our Great Plains rumbled with the invasion of migrating hordes. Singly and in trains came the huge wagons peopled by adventurous pioneers seeking homelands in the New West. With them came their meager possessions, the seed from which new homes were to spring, new lives to be born. Ever onward, westward, they trudged through a land fraught with hardship and misadventure. And by no means the least of these was the constant menace of the Indian. Though some watched passively, the white man's coming, there was ever present a resentment of his intrusion into the land that was theirs by sacred heritage. And so the white man's coming brought fear of the loss of their great hunting grounds, the plains and the mountains which had been theirs alone. Resentment flared into violence, for this they felt was a fight for their land their homes, their very existence. Even then, as now, man fought for the thing he loved, and the Indian was no different. And so the Western Plains became a great battleground, 
steeped in the blood of those who came only to peaceably find new homes, and those whom we called savages because they sought to defend their own lands, even as men do today. Yes, they fought savagely, for they were a primitive people, and self-preservation is a primitive instinct. Born of a land of which one must fight to exist, the Indian turned upon the invader as his natural enemy, an enemy seeking to destroy him. By killing the white man, he saw the removal of the threat to his homeland, the land of his people. And now, more than 80 years later, the great buffalo herds have vanished from the western plain. For theirs, like the Indians, was a lost cause after the white man's coming. But the Indian still fights for existence. A passive fight, but no less a struggle. And that's how we start. We begin by seeing rancher Gene Autry surveying his property with his comedy sidekick Tom, who is played by Hank Paterson, better known to you and me as Arnold Ziffel's father from Green Acres, finds out that the local natives have been encroaching on his land, grazing their animals, and he rides off to find what, what the deal is. And when he meets the chief, he finds him and some of the, the tribe trying to make, give medicine and prayers to one of the village elders who is very sick. And once Jean realizes this, he immediately arranges for her to be taken to the local trading post where we meet the villain's bad guy, Smiley Martin, who is one step above Dick Dastardly in being a conniving, thieving uh, trading post owner who is out to get rich off the backs of the natives offering them pennies on the dollar for their valuables and overpricing their food. When Jean comes in and tells them that they're bringing this woman and the doctor to take care of this, this quickly degenerates into a fight. This is far, a little farther into the film than in the Roy Rogers film, but you know you can't really go more than 10 or so minutes in one of these serials without having a fist fight. And just as the fight is ending, the doctor arrives. Are you Jane Autry? Yes, ma'am. Where's one Mary? Inside. Good morning, doctor. Oh, good morning, Lacona. Doctor? Get my bag for me, will you? It's in the Jeep. Please phone the Ridgeway Hospital. Ask them to send an ambulance. Sure, Doc. Is it serious? Malnutrition. Malnutrition? Yes, a lady doctor. And will she be Jean's love interest? Or is she more interested in the tall and strapping Lacuna, who is just come back to live in the area after having been away and is local silversmith? Jean soon befriends one of the local native kids and follows him to school where he just happens to run into the doctor again. She's at the school to inoculate the children for an outbreak of whooping cough. She is greeted warmly by the students, but when Jean makes his appearance in the school, they all run in panic, afraid of the white man. 
but he soon wins them over. We also learn that the little boy that Jean has befriended earlier is the grandson of the local chief. Jean then takes the doctor on her rounds because her jeep has broken down. Yes, this is set in 1949 where we have jeeps and telephones and all those kind of things. That was also present in the Roy Rogers movie. Both of them are set in the present, although full of western archetypes and garbs and whatnot. It's a weird hybrid that a lot of the serials of that time had. Jean and the doc are getting quite comfortable as she is riding piggyback on his horse. He drops her off and on his way back to his ranch he finds one of the locals who is a sheep herder being hassled by two thugs, one of whom we'll get to discuss later because of who the actor is playing him. So this is our, we are about 10 minutes after the last fist fight, so it's time for another fist fight. The two thugs are there nominally to thin the farmer's herd because of alleged improprieties with grazing. It turns out these two goons are working for Smiley Martin, and soon we are taken to the offices of the sheriff who is going to try and figure out just what is going on. These men claim they're Indian agents, Sheriff. That's a matter for the agency. How about it, Henderson? Never saw them before in my life. We never claimed to be nothing. We was minding our own affairs when Autry here shows up and starts a fight. Just what were you doing on the reservation? Well, uh, we were out there and... Uh... It's all right, Mr. Henderson. These men are working for me. Hello, Martin. Hi, Sheriff. The boys are buying wool. Yeah, that's right. Who's buying wool? Since when have you started trading in wool, Smiley? Since the blankets got so dirty, I couldn't sell them. I aimed to wash the wool and give it back to the engines to weave. Well, Autry, these men were trying to steal the sheep. Broken arm will prove that. An engine will sweat anything if he thinks he can get something out of it. Now look here, Martin. Hold it, Autry. Who are you going to believe? Him or me? It's not a matter of belief, Smiley. It's a matter of proof. Anyway, this is under your jurisdiction, Henderson, not mine. I'm afraid we can't hold them, Sheriff. But the next time you get a bright idea, Martin, you better take it up with me first. I'll do that, Mr. Henderson. Okay, boys, I'll drive you back. Thanks, Sheriff. I'm going to do something about this, Sheriff. Hey, wait a minute. Maybe you don't know it. But Martin's cheating the Indians out of their eye teeth. I wouldn't doubt it. But without some definite evidence, there's nothing to be done. Nothing to be done? You could throw that crooked trader off the reservation. Martin is under a $50,000 bond to the government. The only thing the agent can do is refer the matter to Washington. I thought you were the agent. No, I'm only his assistant. The agent's away on a month's vacation. But I'll be glad to take it up with him as soon as he gets back. <laughs> Bob Collins. Oh, hello, Gene. How are you? Fine. Say, I've got a story for you. Somebody killed somebody? Well, in a way. A lot of Indians are starving to death. Why don't you tell the public what's happening on the reservation? Uh-uh, Gene. The boss says interest and the noble red man died with Geronimo. Sorry, Gene, but no can do. Well, be seeing you. Gene even calls his congressman in Washington, complete with obligatory shot of the Capitol behind him in the window. He says he can't help him because Congress isn't in session right now. But if he makes up a report, he'll make sure that proper people hear about it. This leads us to the first montage of the film where we see Gene doing all of his research about 
all the bad things that are happening and what we might be able to do to fix it. Meanwhile, we see Smiley and his besuited partner trying to, again, get a hold of a blanket that has been worn by one of the natives in the store a couple times. So how does Smiley accomplish this? He goes out in front of them and starts eating huge loaves of bread, making a total jerk out of himself, and then completely lowballs the woman for her blanket, which we had heard earlier in the film was a prize antique passed down to her from her family. We also hear Smiley and his partner lusting after the chief's turquoise necklace, with his partner suggesting that it's worth more than all of the other stuff they've gotten put together. They just have to find a way to get a hold of that necklace. Meanwhile, the good guys work on their plan to get rid of Smiley. If we can get enough names on this petition, we can have Martin thrown off the reservation. That shouldn't be difficult. Well, you know he isn't going to give up without a fight. He's not going to be able to do much fighting when he's out on his ear. Well, the first move is to get the chief to call a council. Rona. Hello there, Rona. How are you? I'm all right. Only my grandfather, he went away two days ago and hasn't come back. Two days ago? Did he say where he was going? He was going to get colored sand for the sand pictures. I know the place. Well, you run along, Rona. We'll find him. No telling how long he's been here. He's been hit from behind. What's he feeling for? The turquoise necklace. It's gone. Was it valuable? The chiefs of our tribe have worn it for a thousand years. We've got to get this man to a hospital. So Long Arrow was in the hospital, but who stole his necklace? They're in you, all right. Where'd you find them? Near where the chief was lying. I went back to do a little investigating. Off Long Arrow's moccasins? No, I checked with the hospital. Showing this to the sheriff? Not yet. I thought you might be able to give me a clue. If they were handmade, I might. But this is commercial silver. So glad you're here. From the way you were riding, so am I. Hello, Nan. Come inside. What's up? There's a warrant out for your arrest. For me? What for? Martin told the sheriff that Lacona attacked Long Arrow. Why? Lacona will be chief if Long Arrow dies. But Jean Lacona was with us. How long was the chief lying in that war stock? About two hours. Lacona, what are you doing? I don't want my friends to suspect me. Wouldn't be in this mess now if you'd taken that engineering job that Henson offered you. I told you when you finished college that you, that you shouldn't come back to the reservation. I belong with my people. Guadalcanal, Iwo Jima. Where are you going? To the sheriff. You still belong with your people, Lacona. Giving yourself up now would be playing right into Martin's hands. Are you suggesting that I run away? That's right. Until we find out more than we know now, you won't get a fair shake with Martin in the picture. Jean's right, Lacona. You wouldn't have a chance. And your people may need you more than ever now. Lacona's military service comes up because during one of the pauses that we edited out, they showed a close-up of his uniform along with some medals. So Lacona is here 
a stand-in for Ira Hayes on some level. So Gene and Lacona escape. While they are gone, escaping Smiley and the sheriff, later that night they sneak into, into the trading post to try and find out if the Cherokee necklace has been hidden in Smiley's bedroom. It wasn't, but that soon leads to the sheriff and a posse and Smiley and his two goons chasing Gene and Lacona into the hills where they're trapped for a while until, in a wonderful juxtaposition, they are rescued by the other members of the tribe who have come to their rescue. We are also treated at this time to both a fist fight between Gene and one of the goons and a gunfight between Smiley and Lacona. Eventually, the government agents show up to finally figure out what's going on. As they are arguing, Gene's assistant is once again bemoaning that they can't trust the Indians. When Lacona sees that Smiley is perched up on a nearby ledge with a rifle is getting ready to shoot them, so he knocks Gene and Tom out of the way, and this leads to one of the government agents shooting Smiley. So then Tom apologizes for being the bad good guy in the film. This is then followed by a montage of classic newspaper headlines, which includes things like country rallies to Indian aid. So, a happy ending, right? And you're wondering, wait, why exactly is this a Christmas movie again? Well, we've just gotten to this part. After the montage, we see Gene and Tom dressed as Santa, riding horses, bringing a load of Christmas gifts to the children of the reservation, including Gene singing his famous song, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. We also see that Lacona is now wearing the turquoise necklace because Long Arrow passed away, and so he is the new chief. And he and Nan are a couple, and she tells Jean that her name isn't really Nan. It's Nanisha, and she is part Indian. And then Jean tells her that he's known all along, ever since he saw her speaking Navajo to one of the Indians earlier in the film. And then we end with the children of the school singing Silent Night, the end. And the connection between the actors that we mentioned earlier in the review, well, well, Lacona was played by Jay Silverheels, and Luke, one of Smiley Martin's goons, was played by Clayton Moore. They would, of course, go on to become Tonto and the Lone Ranger, respectively, arguably the most famous television cowboys of the era. So there you have it, two very tenuously linked Christmas films that you would not necessarily expect to be watching at Christmas. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you all again next time. Be sure to listen to the rest of the shows on the When It Was Cool Network and look for Carl's Top 201 Wrestlers of All Time list coming in the new year. Thanks. Bye. Come Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus Lane. 
fixin' and blitzin' and all his reindeers pullin' on the reins. Bells are ringing, children singing, all is merry and bright. Hang your stockings and say your prayers, cause Santa Claus comes tonight.